I'm Shamari Reed. Welcome to Water for Teachers, a Heinemann podcast focused on engaging with the hearts and humanity of those who teach. One thing I know for sure is that teachers are human. We have fears, we experience tragedy, we struggle, we are affected by crises and pandemics, and like everyone else, we deserve to lead lives full of peace, joy, and love. Join me and other educators as we move from logic to emotion, from the head to the heart, from thinking to feeling, and from the ego to love. This is Water for Teachers. So hi, everybody. Welcome to episode one. I feel so full right now because this journey to this podcast has been incredible. But here we are, getting to engage with the heart and the humanity of a brilliant human who teaches, Holly Jordan. But before I speak with Holly, I want to start off today's episode with a letter. After, I'll invite Holly to explore any and everything the letter brings up for us both. The letter I'm going to read today is one written by a high school student to her former third grade ELA teacher. A letter to my third grade teacher. I used to dream of becoming a writer up until your class. I remember when you told the class to bring in a book from home for silent reading. I remember how my father used to bring home books that the children of his co-workers outgrew. I remember finally finding the perfect book for silent reading and eagerly packing it into my backpack the night before school. I counted down the seconds until silent reading and I carefully placed my book onto my desk making sure not to crease the edges. You walked around the classroom, praising the book choices of others. I grew excited as you approached my desk. I knew that you would be impressed with my book. I remember how you approached my desk and took a quick glance over at my book. That book is not right for you. It's too advanced. Pick out a book from the library in the back. I used to dream of becoming a writer up until your class. What you did not know was that I come from a family of immigrants. My family had to learn English together. Our English consisted of the words my father picked up from his early job as a busboy. Our English consisted of the words my mother gathered through her small interactions with our neighbors. Our English was the English my two older siblings brought back home from school. At a young age, I pushed myself to learn and perfect the English language as best as I could. I made sure to read any book that I had access to, and I practiced my reading as much as possible. I slowly developed a love for a language that was once foreign to me. However, your words made me feel as though my efforts were not good enough. I used to dream of becoming a writer up until your class. Now I want to invite Holly to engage in a conversation with us. Holly has been a public school teacher for 15 years, all of them at the same school in Durham, North Carolina. This year she teaches English and advises the Gender and Sexuality Alliance. Holly describes herself as an active learner and teacher of racial and social justice, both inside and outside of the classroom. Welcome Holly, thank you for sharing this space with us. 
I'm really honored to be here. Thank you so much, Shamari. Um, so I definitely have things that I want to explore with you. But first, let me just open the space and invite you to share anything that's on your mind, on your heart, after listening to that letter. Yeah, that letter was heartbreaking. Um, and what it reminded me uh, was, was honestly something I think about pretty much every day in the classroom, which is that each of our students are individuals and there is so much going on behind the scenes and that's hard to remember sometimes in a room of you know 30 or more students in a long long day or you know in this current environment in a zoom classroom full of black boxes yeah um but yeah, what that letter made me think about was that my students are individuals bringing things into the classroom, and I, as an educator, am an individual bringing things into the classroom on that day as well. And sometimes we meet and those things mesh, and sometimes we meet and those things lead to heartbreaking moments. Yeah. I'm so sort of, I don't know, like, it's calming to hear you say that we are educators who bring things into the classroom because I started, you know, this podcast with this desire to have this space where I could engage with other humans who teach other imperfect humans, though, who take our job seriously, who try and work very hard, but who as humans make mistakes. And I wanted to talk with you specifically around this idea of imperfection and vulnerability because you're someone who is vocal about being a, a white woman who teaches in a school that historically has served a large number of black students, right? And navigating that and what that means as someone who wants to get it right, but who is aware that we make mistakes mistakes that could hurt those we serve. And so I want to just go to a tweet and talk to you about this tweet. You retweeted this, by the way, so I hope you remember. And you said this, your retweet said, teachers, you are not heroes and you are not rock stars. You are teachers. Being a teacher is like a really good thing, you know? When we pretend we are something other than what we are, we belittle what we actually do. Normalize just being a teacher. It's really a good thing. And so I want to ask you, Holly, if you could walk us through a moment in which you realized that you're not superhuman, that you're a human who teaches, who is imperfect, and who will make mistakes. Yeah, man. I mean, there are <laughs> so very many moments of imperfection. And um, I guess, I guess one one um, sort of moment in time that stands out to me is a class I taught several years ago. Um, for most of my career, I've um, taught three preps a day um, without repeating preps. Um, and that has uh, often, you know, that's difficult planning wise. I know some teachers have way more than that, but for me, um, that's, something that I value because of the classes I get to teach, but it also means that there's a lot of planning time. And one semester, um, I ended up uh, being given a course that I had never taught before, 
uh, literally a day and a half before the semester started. I just have so many memories of that semester because I had to accept imperfection from myself every single day because I just, it wasn't possible with the hours in the day that I had, with the other classes I was planning, with the fact that I'm a human being who needs to do things that aren't teaching related sometimes. I would do what I could, but you know, after an hour or two hours of planning a 90 minute lesson, if I do more than that, like it was just taking over my life. And so I was really just underwater that whole semester. Yeah. And um, I would feel, I felt so much, I really had to work through the guilt that I felt because I knew that my students deserved better in terms of the content, um, the class content that I was providing them. But I also knew that every day I walked in there and I created a space that was welcoming and inclusive and made students feel good to be there. And sometimes the way I was teaching 1984 and other texts that this was my first time teaching, I couldn't even swap them out for texts that I really wanted to teach because I didn't have time to plan all of that. Sometimes the lessons I was bringing weren't as innovative or, or anything like that as I wanted them to be, but I could walk in and feel good about the relationships that I was forming, about the goals that we set together and work towards. But it was just, it was very hard for me as someone who really believes that my students who are almost entirely black and brown deserve the absolute best and way more than the world frequently has to offer them. And in that moment, I couldn't do it on my own. And so I had to offer them what I had. When did you or how did you get to a space where you could acknowledge that, forgive yourself for it, and move forward? That is a great question. And I think one of the answers there, this takes me back to another moment. Um, I remember this had to be like maybe second or third year when things were still really hard. I was still really learning. And I was having a rough day just in terms of feeling like nothing I was doing was working. And I had a student walk in and she was wearing a shirt that said, it's not that serious. And for whatever reason that resonated with me that day, because something I really hold to be true about teaching is that it deeply is that serious. Like our work is very serious, but if we ever think that without us in a particular moment that the world's going to end, that our students' lives are going to blow up, that we are the saviors. And especially me as a white person, I'm not going to be a white savior for my students. That's not an appropriate relationship to hold. So I think it was finding that balance that, yes, this is very serious work, but I am not the end-all be-all because that centers me. And in a classroom, if I'm centering me, something's off that's wrong. Yeah, I love that you say that because my first year, I think I told myself the exact opposite. I am it. I am, you know, Superman. I can do everything. I don't need a lunch break. I don't need to, you know, X, Y, and Z that I will always be perfect. And I think to admit, 
that I made mistakes, it takes a certain level of like vulnerability to admit that we as teachers are human and imperfect and will make mistakes, which is why the letter I started with um, isn't really to vilify teachers, but to talk about a mistake, to talk about we had maybe it was a long day, the teacher didn't, I don't know, realize or recognize, but those mistakes do hurt. And I think back to my first year and trying to be so super, and I was so full of myself, I did something that I, it took me forever to forgive myself for, but I thought I would encourage my students by trying to move them all from grades that I thought were too low for them to A's. And so what I did, I'm like so embarrassed. I wrote each period on the board and I put the number of A's each class had, the number of B's, the number of C's, the number of D's, and the number of F's. And I would circle the F's and I would tell them, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And I thought I was encouraging them. I thought what I was doing was positive, but now I can look back and only imagine how much shame and embarrassment I probably caused some of my students, those who had the grades that were, you know, lower than I thought they should have. I also had to unlearn that it wasn't a, you know, grades aren't always direct measurement, if you will, of intelligence. And there could have been something else, but it took me years to forgive myself for that. Like, I felt like a terrible person to say like, you made a really big mistake and I never got to apologize to them. But if they're listening and if they, you know, come across this, I am, I'm sorry. I am sorry um, that I made that mistake. And I understand that sort of me saying sorry doesn't remove the pain they may have felt. But yeah, we, we mess up. Yeah. Apologizing to students is so valuable. It's such a valuable skill. Um, I can think, you know, I, I, I remember apologizing to a class last year um, after we'd had a guest speaker in class and I really felt that the class was being just sort of rude and dismissive to this guest speaker. And that really um, raised some feelings for me because of, you know, I didn't want that guest speaker to feel like their time was wasted or to form any opinions about my students. And um, what ended up happening was uh, I held a restorative circle with my class in order to kind of work through how I was feeling frustrated and hurt. And I know they had reacted in that particular way for a reason. And they were honest with me and they said, you know, Miss um, Jordan, this speaker was one, boring, that was true, <laughs> uh, two, speaking down to us in certain ways. And when I looked back upon it, I could see that. And I could see that, I could see the reasons that they detached from what was happening. And I apologized for my anger because they were right. Like they had seen something that I couldn't see in that moment because I was so clouded with like embarrassment of what are people going to think. And I just, those moments are, are really powerful. And I think model something for young people that they need in their lives, just as each of us needs it. Yeah, and I, but I think the important step, at least it was for me, is recognizing that you messed up. Like I could only, I could only apologize after I accepted that I wasn't Superman. 
And I think that's what broke me is because I had been prepared and told for so long, especially as a black man, right? Like, we need you. You're going to come and do so many wonderful things and you're this and you're that. And there's really a, you know, a scarcity of black male educators and all these things. I thought I was like so special and I still feel that I'm special. But what I had to learn was that I'm not any better than anyone else. And that as a human who is imperfect, I can make mistakes, even as this guy who has been sort of regarded as the one who's going to come and turn things around. But it, like it broke it broke me like I was crying when I realized you messed up. You actually made a mistake, a really big mistake. And who knows, there could have been others and you will continue to make mistakes. And so I wanted to ask you how you navigate that as you know, in your identities as a white woman who navigates like anti-racist teaching and teaching predominantly black and brown students and this idea that people say you will make mistakes and you will. How do you navigate that? How do you hold that truth and the truth that you want to do your work in a way that honors the the promise to the uh, to educational equity that these students deserve? That is such an important question for me personally, because in my journey as an anti-racist educator, I started out without that intention in my career. I just, you know, I started out as, uh, you know, a 22-year-old woman fresh out of undergrad coming halfway across the country to teach in a place that was new to me at the only school that had offered me a job. And so um, I came in feeling like, okay, well, you know, God or the universe has put me here for a reason. So I must be like an answer for this place. And I figured out within a week that I had all of the things that I thought were answers and that I thought my students needed were completely wrong. Yeah. And so then it was a process of rebuilding. The first thing that I did, and I think the thing that has carried me through 15 years of becoming a better educator and an educator who strives to be anti-racist was listen and listen to my students and more importantly even believe them and believe that their experiences are valid that their emotions are valid the way they're responding to me is valid and really learn from those moments and you know i think back with a lot of deep um shame and embarrassment about some of the microaggressions that I perpetrated um, both toward my black and brown students um, and also my colleagues um, with all the best intentions, but intentions and impact were not the same thing. And I, I, you know, I strive to do better every day. And now I look at, you know, um, white teachers in my school building who are new to the profession. And I have to remind myself to have that patience with them because I'm clear that I didn't know anything and that I caused harm. And there are certainly still moments that I cause harm. And I think, I think that it's about growth, yeah. that incremental growth is healthy for um, humans and for teachers. I think it's about listening and learning and humility. And I recognize that all of that is so much more complicated in the racialized frame of so many white women in 
um, predominantly black and brown schools because every moment of harm matters. And I think that like we're talking about today, teachers aren't perfect and need space to grow and learn. Yeah. Because if I hadn't had that space, if I hadn't had that space, I wouldn't have even been hired in the building that I've worked in and that has been home for 15 years where I've learned everything that I know about anti-racism. That is the starting point of all of that for me. So I think the balance very complicated. I don't have the exact answer of, you know, because there isn't one about like, where's the line? Um, but I do think if there is some sort of line, it is where teachers are willing to be humble and to listen and learn and grow and know that they have to do that. And I'm grateful that I, in my first week of teaching, learned that I didn't know anything and that I really needed to grow. And I think that is where any teacher who's starting out needs to be and remain. So I think ultimately um, what worked for me as an imperfect learner was centering students. I think that's basically always the answer, but by really listening to them and believing them and learning from them um, because they are experts in their own life, that is what um, has helped me grow and learn in my journey as an anti-racist educator. And that to me always has to be central. The students have to be central. Yeah. So as we think about your, your journey and your growth, you and I talked briefly some time ago about hard lessons, right? And you shared that one of the lessons that took you the longest to learn was what it looked like to love yourself. Do you see any connection between self-love and the ability to be vulnerable in accepting our imperfections as humans who teach? Yeah, certainly there is a connection. Um, I mean, one of the things that is great and also hard about teaching is that students will call everything out. They'll call you out and they will see right through you if you are not being real. I mean, I it, it, it has to be eight years ago that a student said to me, Oh, Miss Jordan, is that chocolate on your face? Oh no, it's a zit. <laughs> and, um, I mean, mostly, even at the time, it was pretty hilarious. But I, I, one thing that I often say to um, pre-service and new to the profession teachers is you have to really be comfortable in a lot of aspects of yourself um, because students will in their you know, less together moments take advantage of those things. Um, and that's not just students, that's everyone. That's how, you know, that's how harm happens in the world. So for me, in a journey of self-love, what that has really meant um, in the classroom is a couple of things. One is an increased sense of confidence um, that, you know, the, both the content I have to offer 
the framing of that content and the, you know, the extra advice that teachers are always doling out um, is grounded in um, a reality that's really working for me. And so I feel honored to be able to share with students. I mean, I frequently, when students come to me for advice, I openly talk about seeing a therapist and what I have learned from that therapist. When students come to me for relationship advice, which of course happens sometimes, I had a 45 minute Zoom call earlier this year on this very topic. Um, I am open about the relationships I've had in my life that have ended and what I've learned from that and what I've taken from that. And I, I just truly believe that if we know, we as educators know ourselves, we're going to bring more authentic life changing and world connected education to our students, both content wise, but also all the other things we're teaching students just by our presence. Yeah. Does teaching ever make you uncomfortable as you think about your work and what you have to do and your student, you know, the students you get to serve? Yes. <laughs> uh, teaching, it's just hard. It's hard. And the discomfort I feel, um, I, I actually off, very often at this point in my career feel great comfort about being in the classroom with my students, even when it's the Zoom classroom. But what swirls around all that is the other parts of being an educator. It's the bureaucracy, it's um, the, the things being handed down from administrators, it's the paperwork, it is the professional development that takes time and takes energy but doesn't give much back. And those moments are unfortunately often large enough that they impact what I'm able to bring to the classroom and the energy that I want to want to attempt to bring to the classroom and 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 they unfortunately sometimes cloud the vision of my students and and what is actually valuable to me about this work yeah. and that is a that's something i think about daily and that i have spent all 15 years of my career thus far working through how do I protect my mental health, my well-being, my energy for the things that actually matter? So in that way, teaching makes me uncomfortable. Now we're, you know, teaching during a pandemic. What would you say has been the hardest thing for you about teaching and living during these times? Um, I would say what has been hardest about teaching and living in a pandemic is that I am someone who values structure and routine. And it has been knocked over and out just over and over again since March. I remember um, 
I guess it was, it must have been late March of 2020. Um, basically, you know, we went out of school in mid-March and had like a two-week early spring break. I think a lot of um, districts sort of did that, hoping that, you know, magically we would be going back in April. Um, and so, yeah, our original time out of school was, was set to be two weeks. And um, at the at the end of that two weeks, when it was clear we weren't going back, I had what was actually the first of a trillion now Zooms with students. And, um, you know, I had a call with, you know, my whole avid senior class who I had been with for three years and, you know, got to see their faces and check in with them. And that's mostly what the call was. It wasn't about content. It was about how are you? How are you handling this? And I got off that call and I just bawled because this was, this was just so far out of the comfort zone and out of my routine and, and just the shock of not knowing how emotional it was going to feel to see their faces and understand what they were going through. Um, and so I think there's just been sort of moment after moment like that of, oh, we're going to go back in a month. No, we're not. No, you know, now it's the fall and suddenly we know how to do virtual learning more intensely. Yeah. And so now you have this schedule, but you also have six hours of meetings, you know, via Zoom that aren't about classes. And so, you know, <laughs> um, I have I have done a lot of work in um, my regular school life to understand the routine of it. And, and one thing that I think is valuable about staying in one place for so long is that you can, I can understand certain things and know how they're going to go so I waste less energy yeah. and that's not true this year. Everything <laughs> is learning. <laughs> you know, so I read this book. Thank you for saying that. Like, I feel like I'm not alone. I was like, am I the only one being rocked by this pandemic? And I mean, like it really upset me because I read this book. What is it? Uh, I think a new earth, I think Eckhart Tolle. And it talks about being fully present and being okay with, you know, not knowing. And I read the book and I was like, all right, I got it. I'm fully present and I'm okay with not knowing I can handle uncertainty. Then the pandemic comes and I can't handle it. I cannot handle it. I freak out. I don't know what's going to happen. Are schools going to be open? Are they going to close? Are, are, are my students being affected? Are they losing loved ones? Like all of that uncertainty, it terrified me. I read that I, I spent like 48 hours kind of under my covers in the dark, terrified of this. And I was like, here I was, I thought I had mastered this being fully present thing and this, you know, being okay with the unknown, but it, it I can't, I'm, I, I, I'm a structure routine guy. I really am. And when you take that away from me, I just don't know who I am. Um, so this pandemic has done that. So thank you for sharing that. I feel like I'm not the only one who, you know, is comfortable with structures and routines. <laughs> Yeah, and I've definitely encountered students in the last several months too who are having that same issue. I have so many students coming and saying, I don't have the motivation to do anything. And you know, I try to straight up say to them, I have been, I am right there with you. 
And what that is, is depression and anxiety related to this pandemic. Like, I don't, I'm not going to diagnose anyone. I'm not going to diagnose myself, but I need my students to know that that is a natural reaction to what is happening this year. And I think one thing that has been really hurtful for both teachers and students is that districts are, and in, in just the whole country, um, too many people are acting like we should just be able to jump into this new reality and it's fine. And it's not fine. And, and I think teachers know that very deeply yep. um, as we completely recreate everything we've done. And I think some things something that some teachers are missing is that it's the same for our students. I mean, my students are juniors and seniors in high school. They have been taught how to learn one way for their entire career in school. And now, you know, after 11 years of that, they're being told, now you're going to do it this way, go. And there has not been the, the support there for them. And um, I feel like, you know, as a teacher, I'm trying to provide that support, but I wish there were more structural things in place that were doing that as well, because um, that's not easy for anyone. Right, right. And there are just so many misconceptions about our work. And even in a way, I feel that's dehumanizing to expect us to be able to take a weekend and bounce back and have everything sort of transitioned to remote instruction that is wild to me. And as a human, I'm just like, no, I'm also affected. I'm also tired. I'm also losing people. And so I need time to mourn and grieve. And you want to give me two days to turn 15 years, mind you, 15 years of curriculum that you've built and adapt it for an online space? Like that is dehumanizing. And that is why I think you know, for me, this podcast is so important. It's like, we are people. You cannot treat us like this. You cannot treat us like robots. We need time too. We need care too. And so I wanted to ask, as we think about misconceptions, um, as a human who teaches, what do you wish others knew about you and your work? Well, what you just said brought to mind is this narrative around teachers that I think a lot of people think is flattering, which is that teachers are superheroes, right? You know, the teachers, the, the, sh- the shirts that say, you know, I teach, what's your superpower? Um, or I saw like another um, sort of meme going around Facebook or somewhere that talked about, you know, teachers, I don't remember the, the phrasing, but it was basically about teachers aren't teaching for the money, they're teaching for what you know, the output that students will have. And, and, and sure, like, do I believe that teaching is a vocation for me? Yes. But am I a professional who deserves to be paid for my time? Also, yes. And, you know, I, I really wish that instead of saying teachers are superheroes, or teachers are martyrs, that's the other one that comes up so much, instead of um, sort of perpetuating those narratives around educators, can we perpetuate the idea that teachers are professionals who know what they are doing, who have trained, and who have skills that, that mean they should be both paid and treated like professionals. 
And I just, I really think we need a whole switch in, in how this country sees teachers. I don't want to be a martyr. I am a professional. That's right. What would you say right now to educators who might be listening to us, other teachers? You know, I would say that, I would say that there are a lot of really valid reasons to want to be a better teacher at all times and to want to lean into that idea of perfectionism that, you know, I need to spend four hours perfecting this lesson that's going to take 50 minutes tomorrow. There are lots of reasons that you might be inclined to do that. Um, And yet, if we are not people um, with lives outside of our profession, we are not going to be as good as we can be in this work. And we're not going to be the people that our students need to see as, as role models. And I would also say that, you know, I think those, um, those myths of teachers being superheroes and teachers being martyrs perpetuate a sense of guilt and shame in teachers who aren't always doing the absolute most. And guilt and shame are never the right motivators for anything. And so I have two final questions, Holly. Um, and so, you know, this podcast is called Water for Teachers. This is our first episode, which I'm super excited about. <laughs> and water for me has always sort of symbolized restoration and healing and relaxation, memory, reflection, nourishment. And so I want to end with an abstract question and then a question that it's not so abstract. So here's the abstract question. And I trust that, you know, you'll do with it what you will. <laughs> What is your water? My, well, I'm going to, I'm going to give an abstract answer to an abstract question. Uh, My water is love. And, you know, I, I feel very grounded in my life, both in the love I have come to hold for myself and the, the value I hold in myself and also um, the love of um, really solid, stable friendships and family relationships and um, my romantic relationship with my partner. Those are things that are grounding for me and love is the purpose that I go forward in. So moving, I guess just moving in love is what nourishes me. Yes, 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 yes. Wow. (laughs) I love love. So like, (laughs) I don't know if you knew that, but like, I am like feeling so many things right now. And I, you know, always say to myself when I wake up, love now, love always, love now, love always, love now, love always. I believe it's quite powerful. Um, Final question. What connections do you see between vulnerability and the art of teaching? I guess what I see the most in the connection between vulnerability and the art of teaching is that in order to be the most powerful teacher possible, you have to be vulnerable because, you know, like we have both talked about, when we walked into the classroom thinking we had the answers, that's 
when we failed the most. Yeah. And, you know, in order to, um, yeah, you have to be vulnerable in order to make space for the idea that I don't know it all. <laughs> and so vulnerability is necessary um, and just a key component of listening to our students, of believing them, and of knowing that they bring knowledge and wisdom into the space the same way that we bring knowledge and, and, and um, wisdom into the space. And it requires vulnerability to give up control. And a good teacher doesn't always have that control. And so for those of you who are at home listening, I'd like to invite you to join this conversation. Take a moment and sit with that final question. What connections do you see between vulnerability and the work of teaching? And if you feel so moved, please share your responses with us. I would like to engage with you and your humanity. You can share your responses with us using Twitter. Uh, there's a hashtag, Water for Teachers, you know, all together. Or you can tag us using our Twitter handle, um, at Water for Teachers. That's Water, the number four, Teachers. Thank you, Holly, for sharing this space with us. Thank all of you for, for listening. Uh, until next time, in peace and love. Water for Teachers is a production of the Heinemann Podcast and Heinemann Publishing. Today's show was created by Shamari Reed. It was produced and edited by Steph George and Ashley Montgomery. Creative direction from Lauren Audette and Toby Anteo. Logo design by Courtney Enos. The Heinemann Podcast executive producer is Brett Whitmarsh.